Chapter Nineteen of Lorna Doone. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Harris. Lorna Doone by R. D. Blackmore. Chapter Nineteen. Another Dangerous Interview. Although I left the Deanus at once, having little heart for further questions of the wise woman, and being afraid to visit her house under the devil's cheese-ring, to which she kindly invited me, and although I ran most part of the way, it was very late for farmhouse time upon a Sunday evening before I was back at Plover's Barrows. My mother had great desire to know all about the matter, but I could not reconcile it with my respect so to frighten her. Therefore I tried to sleep it off, keeping my own counsel, and when that proved of no avail, I strove to work it away, it might be, by heavy outdoor labor, and weariness, and good feeding. These indeed had some effect, and helped to pass a week or two, with more pain of hand than heart to me. But when the weather changed in earnest, and the frost was gone, and the southwest wind blew softly, and the lambs were at play with the daisies, it was more than I could do to keep from thought of Lorna. For now the fields were spread with growth, and the waters clad with sunshine, and light and shadow, step by step, wandered over the furzy cleaves. All the sides of the hilly wood were gathered in and out with green, silver-gray, or russet points, according to the several manner of the trees beginning. And if one stood beneath an elm, with any heart to look at it, lo, all the ground was strewn with flakes, too small to know their meaning, and all the sprays above were rasped and trembling with a redness. And so I stopped beneath the tree, and carved L.D. upon it, and wondered at the buds of thought that seemed to swell inside me. The upshot of it all was this, that as no Lorna came to me, except in dreams or fancy, and as my life was not worth living without constant sign of her, forth I must again to find her, and say more than a man can tell. Therefore, without waiting longer for the moving of the spring, dressed I was in grand attire, so far as I had gotten it, and thinking my appearance good, although with doubts about it, being forced to dress in the hay-tallet, round the corner of the woodstack went I very knowingly, for Lizzie's eyes were wondrous sharp, and then I was sure of meeting none who would care or dare to speak of me. It lay upon my conscience often that I had not made dear Annie secret to this history, although in all things I could trust her, and she loved me like a lamb. Many and many a time I tried, and more than once began the thing, but there came a dryness in my throat, and a knocking under the roof of my mouth, and a longing to put it off again, as perhaps might be the wisest. And then I would remember, too, that I had no right to speak of Lorna as if she were common property." This time I longed to take my gun, and was half resolved to do so, because it seemed so hard a thing to be shot at and have no chance of shooting. But when I came to remember the steepness and the slippery nature of the water-slide, there seemed but little likelihood of keeping dry the powder. Therefore I was armed with nothing but a good stout holly-staff, seasoned well for many a winter in our back-kitchen chimney. Although my heart was leaping high with the prospect of some adventure, and the fear of meeting Lorna, I could not but be gladdened by the softness of the weather, and the welcome way of everything. 
There was that power all round, that power and that goodness, which make us come, as it were, outside our bodily selves, to share them. Over and beside us breathes the joy of hope and promise. Underfoot our troubles past. In the distance, bowering newness tempts us ever forward. We quicken with largesse of life, and spring with vivid mystery. And in good sooth I had to spring, and no mystery about it, ere ever I got to the top of the rift leading into Dune Glade. For the stream was rushing down in strength, and raving at every corner, a mort of rain having fallen last night, and no wind come to wipe it. However, I reached the head ere dark, with more difficulty than danger, and sat in a place which comforted my back and legs desirably. Hereupon I grew so happy at being on dry land again, and come to look for Lorna, with pretty trees around me, that what did I do but fall asleep with the holly-stick in front of me, and my best coat sunk in a bed of moss with water and wood-sorrel. Mayhap I had not done so, nor yet enjoyed the spring so much, if so be I had not taken three parts of a gallon of cider at home at Plover's Barrows, because of the lowness and sinking ever since I met Mother Meldrum. There was a little runnel going softly down beside me, falling from the upper rock by the means of moss and grass, as if it feared to make a noise and had a mother sleeping. Now and then it seemed to stop, in fear of its own dropping, and wait for some orders, and the blades of grass that straightened to it turned their points a little way, and offered their allegiance to wind instead of water. Yet before their carkled edges bent more than a driven saw, down the water came again with heavy drops and pats of running, and bright anger at neglect. This was very pleasant to me, now and then, to gaze at, blinking as the water blinked, and falling back to sleep again. Suddenly my sleep was broken by a shade cast over me. Between me and the low sunlight Lorna Doone was standing. "'Master Ridd, are you mad?' she said, and took my hand to move me. "'Not mad, but half asleep,' I answered, feigning not to notice her, that so she might keep hold of me. "'Come away, come away, if you care for your life. The patrol will be here directly. Be quick, Master Ridd, let me hide thee.' "'I will not stir a step,' said I, though being in the greatest fright that might be well imagined, "'unless you call me John.' "'Well, John, then, Master John Ridd, be quick, if you have any to care for you.' "'I have many that care for me,' I said, just to let her know. "'And I will follow you, Mistress Lorna, albeit without any hurry, unless there be peril to more than me. Without another word she led me, though with many timid glances towards the upper valley, to and into her little bower, where the inlet through the rock was. I am almost sure that I spoke before, though I cannot now go seek for it, and my memory is but a worn-out tub, of a certain deep and perilous pit in which I was like to drown myself through hurry and fright of boyhood. And even then I wondered greatly, and was vexed with Lorna for sending me in that heedless manner into such an entrance. But now it was clear that she had been right, and the fault mine own entirely, for the entrance to the pit was only to be found by seeking it. Inside the niche of native stone, the plainest thing of all to see, at any rate by daylight, was the stairway hewn from rock, and leading up the mountain, by means of which I had escaped, as before related. To the right side of this was the mouth of the pit, 
still looking very formidable, though Lorna laughed at my fear of it, for she drew her water thence. But on the left was a narrow crevice, very difficult to espy, and having a sweep of grey ivy laid, like a slouching beaver, over it. A man here, coming from the brightness of the outer air, with eyes dazed by the twilight, would never think of seeing this, and following it to its meaning. Lorna raised the screen for me, but I had much ado to pass, on account of bulk and stature. Instead of being proud of my size, as it seemed to me she ought to be, Lorna laughed so quietly that I was ready to knock my head or elbows against anything, and say no more about it. However, I got through at last, without a word of compliment, and broke into the pleasant room, the lone retreat of Lorna. The chamber was of unhewn rock, round, as near as might be, eighteen or twenty feet across, and gay with rich variety of fern and moss and lichen. The fern was in its winter still, or coiling for the springtide, but moss was in abundant life, some feathering and some gobleted, and some with fringe of red to it. Overhead there was no ceiling but the sky itself, flaked with little clouds of April whitely wandering over it. The floor was made of soft low grass, mixed with moss and primroses, and in a niche of shelter moved the delicate wood-sorrel. Here and there, around the sides, were chairs of living stone, as some Latin writer says, whose name has quite escaped me, and in the midst a tiny spring arose, with crystal beads in it, and a soft voice as of a laughing dream, and dimples like a sleeping babe. Then, after going round a little, with surprise of daylight, the water overwhelmed the edge, and softly went through lines of light, to shadows and an untold bourne. While I was gazing at all these things with wonder and some sadness, Lorna turned upon me lightly, as her manner was, and said, "'Where are the new-laid eggs, Master Ridd, or hath blue hen ceased laying?' I did not altogether like the way in which she said it, with a sort of dialect, as if my speech could be laughed at. "'Here be some,' I answered, speaking as if in spite of her. "'I would have brought thee twice as many, but that I feared to crush them in the narrow ways, Mistress Lorna.' And so I laid her out two dozen upon the moss of the rock-ledge, unwinding the wisp of hay from each, as it came safe out of my pocket. Lorna looked with growing wonder, as I added one to one, and when I had placed them side by side, and bidden her now to tell them, to my amazement what did she do but burst into a flood of tears? "'What have I done?' I asked, with shame, scarce daring even to look at her, because her grief was not like Annie's, a thing that could be coaxed away, and left a joy in going. "'Oh, what have I done to vex you so?' "'It is nothing done by you, Master Ridd,' she answered very proudly, as if naught I did could matter. "'It is only something that comes upon me with the scent of the pure true clover-hay. Moreover, you have been too kind, and I am not used to kindness.' Some sort of awkwardness was on me at her words and weeping, as if I would like to say something, but feared to make things worse, perhaps, than they were already. Therefore I abstained from speech, as I would in my own pain. And as it happened, this was the way to make her tell me more about it. Not that I was curious, beyond what pity urged me, and the strange affairs around her, and now I gazed upon the floor, lest I should seem to watch her. But none the less for that I knew all that she was doing. 
Lorna went a little way, as if she would not think of me nor care for one so careless, and all my heart gave a sudden jump, to go like a mad thing after her, until she turned of her own accord, and with a little sigh came back to me. Her eyes were soft with trouble's shadow, and the proud lift of her neck was gone, and beauty's vanity borne down by a woman's want of sustenance. "'Master Ridge,' she said, in the softest voice that ever flowed between two lips, "'have I done aught to offend you?' Hereupon it went hard with me, not to catch her up and kiss her, in the manner in which she was looking, only it smote me suddenly that this would be a low advantage of her trust and helplessness. She seemed to know what I would be at, and to doubt very greatly about it, whether as a child of old she might permit the usage. All sorts of things went through my head, as I made myself look away from her, for fear of being tempted beyond what I could bear. And the upshot of it was that I said, within my heart and through it, "'John Ridd, beyond thy very best manners with this lonely maiden.' Lorna liked me all the better for my good forbearance, because she did not love me yet, and had not thought about it, at least so far as I knew, and though her eyes were so beauteous, so very soft and kindly, there was, to my apprehension, some great power in them, as if she would not have a thing, unless her judgment leaped with it. But now her judgment leaped with me, because I had behaved so well, and being of quick urgent nature, such as I delight in, for the change from mine own slowness, she, without any let or hindrance, sitting over against me, now raising and now dropping fringe over those sweet eyes that were the road-lights of her tongue, Lorna told me all about everything I wished to know, every little thing she knew, except indeed that point of points, how Master Ridd stood with her. Although it wearied me no whit, it might be wearisome for folk who cannot look at Lorna, to hear the story all in speech, exactly as she told it. Therefore let me put it shortly, to the best of my remembrance. Nay, pardon me, whosoever thou art, for seeming fickle and rude to thee. I have tried to do as first proposed, to tell the tale in my own words, as of another's fortune. But, lo, I was beset at once with many heavy obstacles, which grew as I went onward, until I knew not where I was, and mingled past and present. And two of these difficulties only were enough to stop me, the one that I must coldly speak without the force of pity, the other that I, off and on, confused myself with Lorna, as might be well expected. Therefore let her tell the story, with her own sweet voice and manner, and if ye find it wearisome, seek in yourselves the weariness. End of chapter 19 Recording by Michelle Harris